Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, February the 10th, 2022. This is episode 3035 of the Survival Podcast. Yep, we've gotten on on uh, with each other here now and done this show 3035 times. Coming up on 14 years of doing this podcast this June. Thank you for all of you who have been uh, part of the journey along the way. If you're a brand new listener tuning in your first show today, you've picked a great type of show to, to enter with. The Expert Council Q&A. These are people that over the years that I've found and formed relationships with that I trust their opinions greatly. And I allow you guys to send questions in for them so they can be answered. I always have some stuff to say, too, on days like this and have a segment myself. Today we've got a great lineup of special guests, or I should special guests. What's wrong with me? I'm sorry, Expert Council members. Uh, first of all, in the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, we have Ron Paul talking about having fun while spreading the ideals of liberty. CNN's doctor says the settled science has changed. Imagine that. The settled science has changed. Again, Dan McAdams will talk about that. And Chris Rossini will talk about how the federal debt just hit $30 trillion, uh, uh, acting as the anchor for Ron's team there. Then we have a question for John Pugliano, actually twofer, and very unrelated to each other. We're going to compare satellite phones to ham radio for emergency communications, and we're going to talk about avoiding 529 plans, which I've told you from the very beginning. John will uh, take that on as well, giving his take on it. Ben Falk will talk about developing land for wildlife, uh, Jeff Lawton will talk about testing and rehabilitating soil that has been degraded. Tim Toolman Cook will talk about sizing an inverter for backup power relative to your vehicle. Chef Keith Snow will talk about cooking rabbit and making it delicious. And I've already done my segment today. It was part of a live stream that went out on YouTube. And uh, it was a follow-up on my show earlier this week on Liberty versus Tyranny. And this is called Liberty versus Tyranny According to, of all people... Joseph Stalin. Am I actually going to quote Joseph Stalin? Yes. In, 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 to spread liberty? Yes. Because I'm going to talk about liberty versus tyranny. So I need an expert on tyranny and the, the threat that liberty plays toward tyranny. I can think of no better expert on that subject than Joseph Stalin. He's an expert. He was, fortunately, was, past tense. His pronouns are was, were, was an expert on tyranny and certainly feared the concept of liberty, as you shall hear today. With that, let's go ahead and jump on in, and let's hear from Ron Paul's team. Again, in order, you will hear from Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini. In a way, I get a little bit of satisfaction from this because... Uh, if you know, I tend to want to be as optimistic as possible. And when I campaign around the country for a couple of years and I talk to a lot of young people, I told them that bad things were coming, you know, financially and morally and there would be breakdown of law and order and all these kind of things. But uh, I usually after an hour speech, I would give about 10 minutes, 15 minutes on uh, when you get together and when you're fighting for the cause of liberty, have some fun doing it. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. So in the meantime, enjoy yourself and coming together. I was like, 
holy man, I didn't know anybody up in Canada was was listening. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. But I think that's a natural thing. Yeah. And when you get together with like-minded people, except if you happen to be believe in authoritarianism, they never have fun. But it does remind me of someone who was one of the absolute worst. He was on television all the time condemning those that didn't get shots, condemning those that didn't wear masks, saying they should feel pain. Well, here's what she tweeted out yesterday. This is uh, Dr. Lorna Wen, Leanna Wen, the CNN's doctor. Here's her just yesterday. In the coming days, we will see many governors and local leaders lift mask mandates. This is the right step and marks a needed shift from government-imposed requirements to individual decision. <laughs> but listen to her rationale, Dr. Paul. It helps to preserve public health authority for when it's needed again. So what she's saying here is if we keep pushing this, they're going to stop listening to us the next time we tell them, put on your mask and put in, take in your shots. So she's saying now, it shouldn't be mandates. It should be up to individual choice. Here's her just last year. Let's look at these next two because shouldn't be able to live this stuff down. Here's her uh, back in September 2021. President Biden's strategy for fighting COVID does not go far enough to compel vaccinations. The time for cajoling is over. Biden should use his full authority to make it difficult for Americans to remain unvaccinated. He should never be allowed to forget this. And the next one, too. Here's Dr. Leanna Wen in September. What I wish the new Biden COVID strategy would contain, vaccine requirements for interstate travel, mandates for schools, as we do for other immunizations, and a national proof of vaccination system. Cajoling isn't working. It's time for drastic action. She should not, Dr. Paul, I hate to be this way. I know you're not this way. She should not be allowed to live this stuff down because she was enormously influential. She had a huge microphone and she caused so much damage she can't now get away from it by saying well science has changed a new milestone was hit by our our uh, you know fiscally conservative government they hit 30 trillion in debt this week i mean what a scheme they have going they just pay off old debts with new debts it's and they think that they can do this forever uh you know and some of them may say well look it's 30 trillion you know what's unsustainable when does it stop and no one could possibly know the answer to that but it's best to look around let's see how things are look at the mentality of the people they think that that what government does is free free jabs free masks free stimulus all this free stuff is not, it's, it's not free at all you know and so many people in our country have been accustomed to having their hands out you know, give me more free stuff. I have a right to it, they claim. Uh, and it's not just individuals. It's companies. It's states that need bailouts. It's other countries that uh, the U.S. props up. It's such a massive thing that they have going. And when they, when you do this, the demands only, only get greater. They never go down. The more handouts, more free, so-called free stuff you give, the more hands will appear in your face. So it ultimately just spirals out of control and the gears have to grind to a halt. This We are not any more special than anybody who has lived in all of human history to think you could pull this off forever. You can pull it off for a while, but ultimately they will grind to a halt. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of surprised people to find out that the government really has nothing else to give.
So on that one, I think Chris, who's the last gentleman you heard, edits these pieces together for me every week and sends them over. Pulled the trigger on the on the cut on the edit just a couple seconds uh, too soon. I did not cut that off, just to let you know. But I think it's pretty clear where he was going. There's going to be a lot of surprise people at the end of this. And, uh, you know, kind of my thoughts expanding a little bit on, on what we just heard there. Number one, I'm, I'm completely with Ron Paul. Uh, we need to have some fun. As we're spreading the message of liberty, it can't all be gloom and doom. Then there's nothing to hope for. And that's why I've started to quote the great Cobra Kai, right, on this show, uh, referring to the, you know, the, the educational forum that we put together, the community that we have as a dojo, life's true dojo. Fear does not exist in this dojo. There is no room for fear. Fear will do us no good. Fear has a very limited use case scenario. That is, there's a car coming at you, and you're going to get run over, and fear takes over, and you jump out of the way. That's about it. And, and even at that, you have to not be subject to irrational fear. If the car's doing five miles an hour, and you're going to jump off a cliff, you're better off getting hit by the car or jumping up and rolling across the hood. You're going to have to think, even when fear plays a role, you have to think. And one of the ways to do that is to stay somewhat happy. That's why the military is big on dark humor. When I was a soldier, some of the stuff that, like, I, I, I said this a, a, quite a while ago in an episode, like, a lot of times when you guys see or hear military personnel, especially on social media, where they're having a conversation with each other, and you take things a, a certain way, the reason you take it away that it's not meant is that's not for you. And I don't mean that you're not allowed to be part of it, or we don't want you to be part of it. You don't understand it. It's like we're speaking a different language, but it sounds like words you understand. Because you find some level of joy and humor in even the worst things. And that's what keeps you motivated. And that keeps you believing that there is something that you're working towards. The Here's a reality. And it's an extreme example. But it's what people do often to themselves slowly over time. Suicide. Some people commit suicide. They get really depressed or, or what have you. They lose all hope. And they take a gun and they put it in their mouth. And they blow the back of their head off. And it's a tragic thing. But in some ways, what's more tragic is to watch somebody slowly commit suicide through substance abuse, often is one way that it's done, or just they've actually made the decision, but they're not going to pull the trigger for another five years, and they slowly destroy their life on the way there. All the way along, you can tell it's coming, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. This is what happens when people lose hope. And governments love it when people lose hope, because when governments realize you've lost hope, they always have your solution. They are your only hope. And that you need them. And so if we're going to fight for liberty and freedom, we can't have the freaking Debbie Downer shit, the Eeyore shit, it'll never work. We can't have that. We have to have joy. We have to have something we're working for, not just something we're fighting against. That's how the political system works. The political system is, I don't care if they call it progressive. I don't care if they say it's fighting for freedom or whatever. It's always based on the fact that the other side's worse than we are and you need us. It's never really based on actually moving toward freedom and liberty because it works better in the human mind to create an adversary that's scary that has to be fought. That's how they keep us divided. And I, I agree with Dan on we cannot let these people who have done this to us for so long get away with it in that we'll just pretend it never happened. I don't know that there's any way to actually hold them accountable. Right, like they hold their feet to the fire. What if you got to do anything to the, to the director of the CDC? You're going to do nothing to them. Nothing's ever going to happen. Anthony Fauci belongs in an orange jumpsuit. It's never going to happen. But we can never forgive and we can never forget. And when somebody says, oh, well, you know, they were... No, no, they weren't doing the best they could. 
They were doing the best they could for their own power and for their own aims. They can never be forgiven for what they've done. Somebody said to me when I said that in an episode, I think a couple weeks ago, they were called to forgive because they are Christian. Okay. If that's how you feel, that's fine. You still better not forget. And I have an issue with the concept of forgiving someone who has not repented. I have a problem with that. There's a difference between forgiving somebody in your heart and forgiving someone in deed. Holding on to hate will destroy you. But forgiveness, I'll forgive you when you actually make amends for what you've done, and none of these people have made amends. As for $30 trillion from Chris, he's right. We don't know how far this can go. But I told you $30 trillion was coming years ago. And I even kind of called the time. I was off by a couple years because I didn't foresee this shit happening. But I believe I said we would be at $30 trillion dollars. By 2024, and I said that somewhere around 2012, 2013 time frame is when I said we'd hit that. So I've missed it by a couple years, but you can see why. There was no other scenario other than this where they could print that much money that fast, and yet they did it. But I also said something else. People said, we'll, we'll do, the country will be bankrupt. And they don't mean it in, like, technically, they meant like, like everything would fall apart, and it hasn't. And I said, you know, the thing is, the bigger the debt gets, the more you can print and still have it be a lower percentage of the total. This can go on, believe it or not, for decades more before we have a financial reset. But don't expect that it will. That's one of the, one of the reasons that I teach you guys about investing in yourselves, investing in your homesteads, investing in your tools, investing in your educations, not just holding stocks and bonds that are denominated in dollars, investing in precious metals, investing in cryptocurrency, and specifically among cryptocurrency Bitcoin. That's well-diversified investment. That's well-diversified. In yourself, your homestead, your tools, your knowledge, your skills, all of the assets that you have that can feed you, food storage, emergency preparations, yes, stocks and bonds and equities, yes, precious metals, yes, cryptocurrency. But without all of it, it's not diversification. It's not diversification. And if you're fully denominated in dollars, when this thing falls apart, and it will at some point, you're going to get killed. Financially, I mean. You're going to get killed. Now, will you live to see it? I don't pretend to know. But is there a p potential reality that exists that this happens, you know, when it's probably worse for you? When you've just entered retirement or something like that? Absolutely. Most of you carry guns, and you should. But the odds that you're going to have to shoot somebody or use your gun are a lot lower than the odds we're going to see this whole train come to a crash and end at some point. With that, let's go ahead and here, on talking about economics here, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about investing and why you should avoid 529 plans like the devil that they are and emergency communications with John Pugliano. Hello, TSP. We have a couple questions today, both about ham radio and investing questions. So here we go. First question comes from Pascal in Florida. He's asking about using emergency communications during a natural disaster, something like maybe a hurricane in Florida. He's thinking about things like maybe a satellite phone or ham radio, and he wanted to get an opinion on that. Hey, as far as a sat phone, I mean, that is probably one of the most reliable 24-7 global-type communication methods that you can have for direct private, and secure communication. But that also comes with a cost, right? You have to buy the equipment, and you have to have a monthly subscription fee. 
If your business or your personal situation requires something like that, then go for it. You know, personally, for my lifestyle, I think that would be overkill. And I would definitely encourage you to look into amateur ham radio as an alternative emergency communication method, especially if you're in Florida and if you want to get messages out during something like a hurricane. Ham radio in and of itself is a really excellent emergency communication if you're using the high-frequency bands. And although it does require getting a license and at least getting some training, I guess theoretically you don't have to have a license because no one's going to prosecute you and it's not illegal to make an emergency communication using ham radio during a crisis. I always talk about the license requirement because, you know, in theory it's required. But the bottom line is... Even if you ignore the licensing requirements, it does take training, experience, and familiarity with your radio and how to construct antennas and how to use it. So just buying a radio and putting in a box somewhere doesn't do you any good. If you're willing to go through the learning curve, ham radio is an excellent emergency radio communication, and specifically for what you mentioned in your email, which is about having messages relayed. That's the essence of how emergency communications and ham radio work. So if you have a high-frequency radio, which could potentially be fairly inexpensive, it depends if you're using used equipment or a lower-powered radio, that would cost less money to to get into the hobby. But even if you're just using a a low-power, 5-watt, high-frequency radio, if you know how to use it and if you can construct a simple field-expedient wire antenna, Right, Nothing expensive, nothing complicated. You just need to know how to construct it and set it up. If you can do that, then with very low wattage, you know, 5 watts or less, you can use voice communications to get a signal out, and that signal will be heard by someone. Now, unlike a satellite radio, you can't guarantee who's going to hear your signal and where it's going to go. But propagation will take that signal somewhere. And because the ham radio bands are always being monitored, someone will hear and receive your emergency message, and they will be more than happy to relay that message for you. I mean, that's the magic of how ham radio works and why it's so effective for emergency communications. And you being in Florida on that peninsula with all the salt water around you, that is about the best place you can be in the continental United States for radiating and propagating your signal simply by using a thin piece of copper wire. And specifically as it relates to hurricanes, there are emergency communication hurricane nets that are held in specific places on the ham radio bands. They not only go into operation during hurricanes, but through most times of the day and evening, there are people out there conducting check-in nets just to keep the frequency active. And if you're interested in learning more about that, you can just simply Google ham radio hurricane watch net. And it'll give you several sources where you can listen online just through your computer. You can listen to specific hurricane nets or even other frequencies in the ham radio band just to give you an idea of what's going on in the frequencies and what's happening. Hey, and speaking of what's happening, you know, we've been in some solar minimum, really low sunspot activity over the past couple years. It's had a big dampening effect on radio propagation. Well, a lot of that's starting to clear up. The sunspots are becoming more active. I've recently put my high-frequency radio, just temporarily installed it back into my car, and the antenna I'm using is only a very simple mini hamstick. So this thing is not more than about 36 inches tall. 
And with that little compromised antenna, I'm having absolutely no problem during the day making contacts on 20 meters across the United States. And then the evening, you know, the distance is not as easy to achieve, but I'm still making reliable communications throughout the Rocky Mountains and the western states at night on 40 meters. So if you're into ham radio and it's been a while that you've been on the air because of the low sunspot activity, well, get out your radio, dust it off, and get back on the air. Next question comes from Jimmy. He's asking about starting a 529 plan for his young baby that was just born. Jack already told him that 529s are evil. I totally agree. I think they're the absolute devil. We've talked about this ad nauseum in the past. Jimmy, it sounds like you're a real new investor. Here's what I would advise you to do. Before you go out and open a 529 plan, do some research on what retirement type savings accounts are available to you. It depends on your particular situation, but I'm sure that you are qualified to be able to contribute to an IRA, a Roth, maybe a 401k plan at work. You know, there are a lot of retirement options out there. And for me personally, before I would ever contribute one penny to a 529, I would first make sure that I've at least considered maxing out whatever contributions I was eligible to make to my retirement plans. Because what most people don't know, you can always make penalty-free withdrawals from your retirement plan to pay for your children's education. Now, depending upon whether it's a traditional IRA or Roth or what type of 401k it may be, there could be taxes involved. But it would be penalty-free. And so from that perspective, in my opinion, it doesn't make sense to contribute to a 529 plan, especially if you're not already maxing out your other retirement options. And then to totally get around the tax situation, that's why I always prefer the Roth option over the others, because the Roth option, although you don't get the tax break up front, your gains grow tax-free forever. And I think that tax-free is always better than tax-deferred. Well, hey, thanks for your questions. Until next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. Uh, on that one, I won't add anything about 529s. I do believe they are the devil as well. And I know somebody's going to write in and tell me, but if you're funding your own 529 in your state and you're already an adult, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. Right? If you can find a use case scenario where you're basically putting the money in and taking it out in the same day and getting some kind of contribution from your state or an employer or get, creating some sort of tax scheme that works to your advantage, that's fine. That's not what we're, we're talking about here today. We're talking about putting money in a 529 plan for your kid to go to college when they're all grown up and starting doing that when they're a baby. And you have no, here's my problem with the 529. You have no idea if your kid's going to be right for college or if college is going to be right for your kid. You can have every belief system in the world that you're being, you know, Ward Cleaver and your kid's going to be Leave it to Beaver level kid and they're going to go off to Harvard someday. You have no way of knowing that. And it, what it'll do is it'll create it. It's not just the problem when your kid's not going to go to college. The problem is going to be when your kid knows what they want to do and you have a predisposition because I put this money here for you to go to college with. Maybe your kid wants to learn how to fly helicopters or something. Who knows? Um, on the sat phone, I agree, but I still think there's a huge advantage to a satellite phone. This is the advantage to a satellite phone. I can call my Aunt Edna in Atlanta if anybody gets the pop reference, uh, pop culture reference to Aunt Edna in Atlanta. 
It has to do with a, a movie Jeff Goldblum was in. That's the only clue I'll give you if you don't already recognize it. I can call my Aunt Edna in Atlanta. I can call my Uncle Pete in New Jersey. I can call anybody anywhere that has a phone if their phone is working. If I'm on ham, I can get information. I can have information relayed on my behalf, but I'm going to have to talk to other hams who have the same type of training John talked about. The issue with the expense on a satellite phone, I don't even care about the expense of the phone. Like if you if you're willing to take that bite, that's fine. It's a recurring charge. I've seen plans, you know, advertised as low as like twenty bucks, but I don't see any that exist. I've seen twenty minute monthly plans for about sixty dollars being about the lowest price you can get. Prepaid would make sense, except most of them expire within thirty uh, days from the time you buy the minutes. And that really makes it a non-starter for a lot of people just economically. But I think the beauty of the sat phone isn't not just its reliability. It's the ability to communicate with anyone, anywhere, anyplace, at any time. I would say, though, especially as we see things like Elon Musk's Starlink, if we can get to a point where, where, where satellite Internet is uh, doable and you can replace your regular Internet, and the charge is not that much more, it's a little bit less, it's about the same, and it will do everything you need to do, it is going to become something really to look at uh, for a lot of people. I have communicated over Zello using old-school satellite Internet, I, you know, Wild Blue or whatever the hell it was when I was in Arkansas. We had our place up on the mountain because we couldn't get Internet. It worked fine. And the delay wasn't noticeable because of the, the, the nature of Zello communications. I know if there's a hurricane, your power can go out. You can have a generator for that. I know the, the satellite dish can get ripped off your roof. I get that. But assuming what you're dealing with is outage around you and a lack of service and a lack of, let's say, phone service because the cell towers are damaged in some way, but you can run enough power to run your satellite modem and run your laptop, you can then use Zello, assuming you've, you've already said, or some other you know technology like that, Or you can actually, with VPN service like Skype, with direct out dial, call anybody anywhere. And it's worth at least considering if you're that worried about it. Next up, let's hear from Ben Falk on uh, planting and designing land for wildlife. Hey, Jack and Todd. It's Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. This is a great question that you have there, Todd, about planting for growing wildlife. In the Catskills on your site, which sounds really nice. Um, great idea. I wouldn't limit it to just two species. I mean, you're not really asking that, but I'll back up and say that first. I would think about, you know, a range of food and focused especially on food when there is little food in the landscape, which is pretty much winter. So that's what we focus heavily on apples that, that are held on the tree, varieties of apples that tend to hold on the tree all winter and bear reliably. Those are big. Um, you can kind of find wild trees that tend to do that and take cyanwood from them and then graft them onto trees. So get planted, get started with planting apples no matter what. The more the better within reason. And then you can always add, you know, good varieties you should be over, over the years. Um, as you find what works well due to pest pressure, due to climate, due to everything else. So, um, that's one thing. I would, I would also persimmons in your climate, you know, persimmons are a classic, amazing winter food source that hold all, all winter. Um, Sean Dombrowski is probably a good source for those in western New York, um, edible acres. And, um, we kind of 
are pushing those up here, but they're not, they don't really love the climate. Um, so that's one thing. Another is that I would, okay, hold on. And, um, I would also plant, um, the chestnuts in a, a very dry location. They won't tolerate wetness pretty much safe to say. Um, Clay and chestnuts really don't mix. I've tried for many years. They want your sandiest, gravelliest soil. Um, so I would plant them in the driest spot you can. No, okay, hold that? on. Okay. And um, if you only have clay, then plant them on as big of a mound as you can afford to make um, and still pick your driest spots. Um so that's one thing. And then as far as the arrangement, which your question really focused on, you know, organize it around your sight lines for shooting, but you can always move where you shoot from to some extent too. And you can only, you know, uh, grow so much food in a specific area. And the pattern that's going to allow you to grow the most food in that area is like tallest trees to the north and to the uphill, which sounds like it makes sense on your slope anyways, because it sounds like it's facing southeast. So I would tend to put chestnuts up high on the hill. That's also the driest. Put your lowest growing stuff furthest to the bottom in a succession. Um, and just keep some shooting lanes open. And, you know, th sometimes they'll stand in a place you don't want them to, I'm sure. But that is what it is. You're going to get them really fattened up well and help the herd a lot. But I would definitely consider other species. Just look around your area and see what has food in the winter um, think about a range of, of food throughout the season and especially nuts, um, that they'll eat. Um, you probably have a good amount of oaks, but maybe if you only have a lot of red oaks, add some white oaks in the mix or vice versa. Probably down there, you have a good mix of both, which is, you're very lucky. Um, anyway, good luck. Next up, we have uh, one for Jeff Lott, and we might as well do two permaculturists in a row. Um, this one's going to be on degraded soil, determining organic matter count, and rehabilitating infernal soil. And I will let you know right up front, and Jeff will reiterate this, there is some background noise here. There's some rain going on. He's under a metal roof. There's uh, some excavators around, not right up next to him, but there is some background noise, and there's no way I can filter it out. Uh, so, you know, Jeff, being the guy that he is, traveling all over the place, constantly working uh, in the field, including when he's at home uh, on his, on the PRI, um, you get what you get. But it's clear enough what he's saying. It's not like you can't understand it. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And it's uh, raining pretty hard on the roof above me, and I've got earth movers working around, so I'm sorry about the background noises, but it's just the way it is. Um, I have a question here from the Canadian prairies in relation to a soil that's been stripped of its original nutrients and organic matter and um, someone would like to replenish um, the quality of the soil on their property uh, starting with small areas and in order to know uh, where they're starting and how much dif difference they're making I'd like to know if there's an easy way to um, gauge the amount of organic matter and the uh, test the organic matter content of the soil. Well, an easy way to do that is with a jar test. 
with water and soil, get a, a load of your topsoil in a jam jar, a glass jar, fill it up with water, shake it for a long time until it's all mobilised, then sit it down and let it settle. And uh, the organic matter will be sitting on the top um, of the um, when it all settles back down. Sand at the bottom, loam on top of that, and then clay on top of that. Your geological top layer will be clay. The organic matter being as fine as clay, but as particle size like clay, 15 microns and, and smaller, but it floats a bit. It's not as heavy as clay. This clay is just simply uh, geological material. And um, organic matter is a biological material. The carbon content sits in that at the top layer. But that's not what you really need to know. Um, I'm sorry to tell you. What you really need to know is how much life have you got in the soil. It's only the life in the soil that will do the conversion. And and don't let anybody tell you any different. Um, because you can be testing soil that's had life um, convert the organic matter content, but then it's been destroyed with the next big machinery pass. Um, and then it builds up again and gets destroyed again by large farming systems and it doesn't sound like you're going into a large farming system using unsubtle machinery what you really need to see is how much life is in the soil now all you need for that is a microscope and um, at at, uh, 200 times magnification you can see the fungi at 400 um, you can see protozoas flagellates and nematodes and, and other larger organisms um, and then at, at 600, you can see the bacteria, which are bouncing around and dotting about, um, and they're the smallest size organisms. So the largest number of um, genus in the soil are the fungi and bacteria. We think, and we're not sure because we don't really know a lot about the life in the soil. Well, we don't know a lot of detail. There's a little bit more information out there all the time now, but... There's 50 million genus of bacteria and 50 million genus of fung- fungi in the soil. And there's obviously species within those genus that have not been identified at all. We haven't really identified the genus. Probably 1% of all that's out there doesn't matter. You don't have to know everything to be doing good work. What you need to be able to do is look at your soil with a microscope. And there's ways you can go about that. And it's easy to learn. The soil food web, the work of Elan Ingham is commendable. But there's a lot out there now, uh, as long as, as well as Elan's work, where you're adding beneficial organisms to the soil. Now, you do that with compost en masse and bulk, but if you learn how to make oxygenated compost tea, you gauge whether the compost is any good by the amount of organisms and diversity of organisms that you've you've facilitated to proliferate in your compost, then you can extend it with highly oxygenated water. And I emphasize, it must be highly highly oxygenated. It has to be oxygenated in a way that doesn't kill the organisms. And they can live in that highly oxygenated water for up to six to eight hours. And you can get those onto your soil en masse with a smaller volume. So something like six liters of compost can fertilize a hectare or two acres of ground if it's done the right way where normally you'd be looking at 20 cubic meters to a hectare of solid 
bulk material compost. So the great thing about compost tea is it, it proliferates the organisms in the highly oxygenated water. If you do it right, it's not easy. You've got to learn how to do it. And when you get it onto the ground in liquid form, it starts to breed out there in the soil. Now, you have to get it out there with a low-pressure pump, otherwise you kill all your good work by killing the organisms. But the test is, you can look at your soil now as you do this, and as the organisms increase in diversity and in, in number, you've definitely got a better system for creating soil organic matter. Now, the organic matter is then processed by the beneficial soil organisms. You've got a soil ecosystem now, and its main work is naturally to produce beneficial soil organic matter and carbon content. So if you mulch or if you cover crop or you chop and drop your trees, um, any of those things that make additions to the soil, I mean, you can put worm juice on and different things that add beneficial bacteria. But really, en masse, cover crop's one of the best things. So when you cover crop and don't plough it in, just either allow it to die or cut it and let it lie, the organisms will take it into the soil. That's probably one of the most efficient ways you can get your soil organic matter up. Of course, if you're grazing animals and you sell graze correctly with the right timing and the animals imprint the soil in a way that the organic matter and their manure wash into the imprints you've got these little tiny pits where the organisms in the soil are not too badly damaged by the compaction but they draw in organic matter and process it for you rapid so you can do it with animals you can do it with cover crop you can do it with lots of natural processes but the gauge is how healthy is my soil e or ecosystem? How many organisms are there and how diverse are they? And then you win. And it's not too expensive to do it yourself and learn how to do it yourself. There you go. I, and you can hear the rain really intensified there at the end. In fact, I have another segment from him. I, I hope he'll be willing to redo it because the rain was so bad through the whole thing that I, I can't use it. Um, I do want to reiterate the concept of the life in the soil and the soil life web being the key to fertility. Most soil is not absent the nutrients that's necessary for plants to live, even soil that looks really bad. There's plenty of N, P, and K. Um, it's just, is it available? And there's plenty of the, especially in, in N, P, and K, we can remedy a lot of ways organically with manure, with compost, etc. Um, it's micronutrients that people tend to worry about, you know, the, the little bit of selenium that a seed needs so that when it grows up, it will produce fertile seed for the next generation. Sel selenium deficiency high enough, many seeds will, you know, grow a plant that's okay. It'll be deficient in selenium for you, uh, but it'll look fine. But then the seeds that it produce will fail to yield good offspring or may not even be fertile. That would be one example. The selenium's there. There's, there's, There's places with lower selenium amounts than others, but largely what it is is bioavailability, and it's the life in the soil 
that brings that bioavailability. And I, I just think that we should be encouraged, though, much as we talked about being joyful as we spread liberty, being joyful as we build fertility, in how easy it actually is to bring life back to the soil. The main things you need are some organic matter. You need uh, at least sufficient moisture that the soil never goes completely dry, and we need to keep it cool with, with mulches and ground covers. And if you do that, life come back, comes back really, really fast. And you can see this when you find something like an old boat somebody left laying around and, and just wind and rain blow dust and water into the boat. It's in a little bit of a shady area and you come and all of a sudden there's like a lawn growing in the bottom of the boat. Nobody putting dirt in there. Nobody putting seed in there. Or you see it uh, when people don't clean their grain gutters and the, the, mainly it's build up of asphalt uh, shingle material. And all of a sudden there's plants growing in a rain gutter. Well, how'd that happen? That's because when the conditions are right, life will invade any system. As long as we're on this planet anyway, right? Like, I don't know if that's going to happen on Mars, but here, if you create conditions that are right for microorganisms, they will come. And they may be not the right ones initially if you don't do things in a balanced way. But uh, to quote Jeff Goldblum, and this is not the movie I was referencing early, earlier, but life uh, finds a way. With that, let's go, and, and that's, that's a real advantage that we have as permaculturists, that life finds a way and we just help guide it and accelerate. Remember, we stack in space in permaculture, but we also stack in time. With that, let's move on. We're talking about sizing an inverter relative to the vehicle that you're going to hook it up to. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer yet another question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. This week's question comes from Ben, and his question is, how do I size a portable power inverter for my vehicle properly so that I don't drain my battery? I would like to know how to identify the number of watts my vehicle will generate so I can size a portable power inverter for my vehicle appropriately and not drain my battery. I know there are 500, 800, 1,000 watts, etc. Power inverters available, but I don't know how to verify if the larger ones would drain my car battery. I'm guessing it has a lot to do with the alternator, but I can't find any info on it. In my case, I currently have a 2015 Ford Escape SE 2.0 liter, 240 horsepower engine. What's the highest watt power inverter I should go with for my vehicle? Well, whenever I want to know something like this, I usually, where I started this time was I, I took the model number, the make and model number, threw it into Google, and I added the word alternator to it. Because the first thing we need to find out is the amperage of your alternator. So in this case, the 2015 Ford Escape has a 150 amp alternator. And of course, this is a 12 volt system. So if we want to know wattage, we take our amperage and multiply it by our voltage. So 150 amps times 12 volts is going to give you 1800 watts absolute max. But that, but that is like best case factory scenario. You know, that you're never going to get that in real world. So, you know, that's also with the car being revved up quite a bit, running, you know, at, at a decent speed not just sitting idling in your driveway like it would during a power outage. So the consensus basically seems to be that you want to get an inverter that's sized for no more than half of the max capacity of your electrical system, your, your alternator. So in your case, you get 1,800 watts absolute. Uh, 900 would be ideal. I wouldn't exceed 1,000 for sure. But if you want to be safe, I'd probably go with an 800-watt inverter. That's going to run... Most anything, you know, most household appliances, that kind of stuff. 
And, of course, most inverters have a surge rating for twice their listed capacity. So if you're going to go, the, re- the main reason I would go with an 800-watt inverter is the surge capacity is going to be 1,600, which still won't exceed the max capacity of your vehicle. So hopefully that helps. I, I also thought for the fun of it, I would check my truck just to see what exactly the maximum would be. And I've got a 2020 Ram 1500, 5.7-liter uh, engine. It really seems to be the unofficial truck of Alberta because there's thousands of them on the road out here. Turns out it runs a 220 amp alternator, which means uh, maximum in ideal factory conditions is going to give you 2640 watts. So for the Ram, a 1200 watt inverter with a surge of 2400 watts would be the safest option for sure. I wouldn't want to exceed that at all. And a couple of quick tips. If you're Installing this permanently, make sure, number one, that it's in an area where the heat can dissipate because, you know, the bigger you get into an inverter, of course, uh, the bigger the heat sink, a lot of them have fans, and they need to be able to get that heat away. Otherwise, you're going to spend a lot of money on an inverter, and you're going to shorten its life simply from having it in a place that's just way too hot. Also, make sure that you install an inline fuse so that you don't accidentally haul through more power than you should, and burn up your electrical or worse, entire vehicle. Just be careful because burned up electrical can be enough to write off an entire vehicle. You know, take your time, Google it, find out exactly how to do it. I had a family member a few years ago who decided to get fancy LED lights uh, underneath the seats in their car, ended up installing them wrong, they caught fire, they ended up, thank goodness they had insurance, but between the smoke damage and the amount of work that was involved in going back and tracing all the wires was enough to actually write their vehicle off, which sounds insane, I know. But I say all that, you know me, I'm all about you know doing things yourself. Just make sure you you do it properly, take your time, make sure it has room to breathe, and make sure that there's a fuse in there. Okay, guys, that's it for me this week. I hope that helped. I love questions like this. One other quick thing, uh, Derek Bonpietro probably has more to add to this. So if he's listening and hears this, I'd, you know, throw some in on this as well, because I know a little bit about the, um, you know, being able to calculate the electrical and that kind of stuff, but I'm sure he is, you know, top notch on doing installations. So anyway, guys, if you want to know more about what I do, uh, drop by the YouTube channel, Float or Odyssey every Thursday and Sunday evening. Thursday nights, we cover repairedness, which is the art of home maintenance when help isn't around the corner. And Sunday evening, I interview people from all across the world of preparedness. It's been a lot of fun. I've been meeting a lot of cool people and learning a whole bunch from other people. So that's 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Drop by, say hello, ask a question, and share your knowledge with the community. And guys, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Uh, definitely, we've always said over the years with the concept of using an inverter for some backup power uh, on your vehicle, 800 watts is kind of the best bang for the buck. There's another thing about an 800-watt inverter. It's about the highest-powered inverter that you can reliably just alligator clip to the battery terminals of your vehicle without potentially having some real problems. Whereas when you go up to like 1,000, 1,200, 1,500, you can do it. But those need to be bolted onto the batteries to ensure the connection because I'll just say some bad things can happen if you don't. Um, and so usually when we're using them as backups, this is not something we, we, we install. It's something we use when we need it, kind of an on-demand, even if we keep it in the vehicle. So if we're somewhere out in the field, we can use it. 
And my big piece of advice is get yourself a board significantly wider than your inverter, a little bit longer than the length of your inverter, you know, like a piece of 2x12 or something like that, but like a 1x12 is usually better or a 1x10 because it's less bulky and weighty, and attach your inverter to it. And that way when you set it up on the vehicle or something like that, it's got a nice stable platform. It's less likely like fall down in between the motor and get chopped up in the fan belt and really mess your car up worse. Uh, would have nothing to do with the power, just it's a big chunk of metal falling through you know, your fan belts and your fan and getting stuck somewhere and causing problems. That's additional advice there. Next up, let's talk about cooking rabbit and making it taste delicious with Chef Keith Snow. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow with FoodStorageFeast.com. Wanted to answer Jason's question about making rabbit taste delicious so his family enjoys it. Uh, Jason, here's a pretty simple one uh, for rabbit. Take about a three-pound rabbit that's been cut up into, I don't know, eight pieces. Save the giblets to, off to the side. We'll talk about those in a second. You want to season this rabbit up with salt and pepper. I use kosher salt. And then in a large pot that has a tight-fitting lid, uh, place that over a medium-high heat. You're going to add six tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil. Then you're going to brown the rabbit. Now, um, place the rabbit pieces in the pot in the hot oil and let them brown. You don't want to be tossing them around. It's not a saute. You're just browning the meat. So maybe you move it around once or twice until you start to develop some deep, dark color. And more importantly, you build up some fond on the bottom of that pot. Now, after about 15 minutes of cooking, you should have some decent color on the rabbit pieces. It doesn't need to be perfect, but the idea, again, is to develop some brown um, goodness on those pieces. Use your tongs, remove those to a waiting plate to rest, and then you're going to go into the same pot with a large shallot that's been minced up finely. If you don't have a shallot, you could use maybe a very small red onion and mince that up finely. Toss it in there with three cloves of garlic that have been finely minced as well. And one cup of mushrooms. Now, I would use shiitakes would be great here or maybe cremini mushrooms. Um, they don't need to be super expensive, but make sure they're clean. Slice them up. So you're going to toss all of that together and cook for about five minutes until your vegetables start to soften up a bit. Then you're going to deglaze with a half a cup of dry white wine. Now, a Chardonnay would be perfect here. You don't need to spend a lot of money on the wine. So you'll um, put the wine in there. It should Come up to a boil pretty quickly. Scrape up the bottom of the pot to get any brown bits loose. You want to reduce the wine maybe by about half. Then you're going to put in a half a cup of chicken broth. You're going to put in a large sprig of rosemary. You're going to put your rabbit pieces back in there and any juices that accumulated on the plate, don't throw those out. Those need to go into the pot. And then the giblets we talked about earlier, um, while the rabbit's cooking, toss those into a Vitamix with a couple tablespoons of water and just puree that, um, pr uh, make a puree out of them. And then you're going to put that right into the pot because there's really good flavor there. Stir the whole thing together, reduce heat to low, cover it up with that tight fitting lid, and you're going to cook it for about 60 minutes. Now, make sure you're not having too much evaporation come out of the pot because um, things could get dry in there and you could burn it. Um, so you cook it about 60 minutes and then open it up, turn off the heat. I would take the rabbit pieces out and put them on your serving platter, toss in a couple tablespoons of 
cold butter and just whisk or use a spoon and um, melt that butter in there, moving um, all the time so you emulsify it. Take that sauce and any of the vegetables that are in there, toss the rosemary out, and just spoon that over your rabbit pieces, and you're going to be in rabbit heaven. Now, a great thing to serve this over, since it kind of has an Italian spin to it, would be some stone ground uh, Parmesan polenta. You can find a million recipes for that on the Internet. And if you don't uh, want something like that, maybe just some sautéed kale or grilled broccoli rob, whatever would work great with this. But I think this uh, will be a dish that your family will love, and hopefully uh, the rabbit experiment will work out for you. Um, so that's it. I wanted to encourage everybody to go and check out foodstoragefeast.com and all the free content that we have on that website. I hope everybody has a great rest of their week. Thanks, Jack, and we'll see you all later. Take care. So a few little quick ads about rabbit. I think the easiest thing you can do is think of rabbit as a substitute for chicken. And notice I didn't say it tastes just like chicken. What I'm saying is whatever you would do with a piece of chicken, you can do with a piece of rabbit and you're going to be happy. You do have to be a little bit more careful about drying it out. Uh, everybody talks about, there's no fat on a rabbit. If there was no fat on a rabbit at all, the rabbit would die. Okay, stop. You sound dumb when you say that. Uh, but if you're all, if you were, you know, that's where the rabbit starvation thing comes from. If you're living on rabbits out of the wild and nothing but rabbits, you will not get enough fat and you can end up with, like, it's not because there's too much protein, it's because there's not enough fat. But in, in, unless you're purposely doing this to yourself, it's not going to happen. The other thing is a domestic rabbit has significantly more fat than a wild rabbit. So when we're raising rabbits and they're well-fed all the time, they're not out trying to make a living for themselves. They tend to put a little more fat on. But much like a deer, a lot of that fat is fat on the surface of the muscle. It's not intramuscular fat. So it makes it something that you can dry out. So be a little bit careful with how you cook it, how long you cook it, the method you use. And other than that, you can do anything that you would do with a piece of chicken with a piece of rabbit. And I think, personally, I, I, I prefer the flavor of rabbit to chicken a great deal. I prefer the flavor of squirrel to chicken a great deal. It's a toss-up between rabbit and chicken. And I'm a guy, I've eaten a lot of rabbits that grew up in somebody's hutch in a backyard, and I've eaten a lot of cottontails that were popped with a shotgun, and I find both of them to be fantastic. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, we're going to have my segment for today, and we're going to talk about liberty versus tyranny and do it through a lens where we even look at something Joseph Stalin said. What you're about to hear comes from my live stream today. Live. Hey, guys. Um, for my segment today, uh, I, I wanted to revisit a little bit of the episode we did earlier this week uh, that was well over an hour long on liberty and tyranny, and that being the actual political spectrum. It actually led to a lot of great discussions, both in the YouTube comments for the episode um, and in some other locations, including the, the Survival Podcast blog. And someone asked me a question ab about the two sides in this, and with a little bit of clarification, it led to a response that I gave on the blog. And then this morning I took that response and kind of massaged it and reworked it a little bit and made it more general and uh, decided I would put it out on float as one of my uh, contemplations of a redneck hip hippie duck farmer uh, blogs. And so what I'd like to do uh, at the beginning of this session is actually read it for you. And uh, it's Contemplations of a Redneck Hippie Duck Farmer, Episode 7, Liberty versus Tyranny. Recently I did Episode 3303 of the Survival Podcast called 
There is no left versus right, only liberty versus tyranny. This led to a discussion on where we are in time, how it relates to the fourth turning, and some other great questions. That spawned, with some modification, this edition of Contemplations of a Redneck Hippie Duck Farmer. I think we tend to think we are more unique temporally than we are. That's why we always link ourselves to patterns like the four turnings, which may be totally valid, but unnecessary to drag into every analysis of our current state. However, the two sides in society are what I have always said they are, liberty and tyranny. Done. Most people land on a spectrum in the middle somewhere. At any time, a society is tending to one extreme of the spectrum. Right now, sadly, that direction appears to be toward tyranny. The concepts of anarchism and Marxism-slash-fascism are at the extreme poles of each. And even the worst tyrants know this. Here is a quote showing that to be the case. Quote, The cornerstone of anarchism is the individual, whose emancipation, according to its tenets, is the principal condition for the emancipation of the masses, the collective body. According to the tenets of anarchism, the emancipation of the masses is impossible until the individual is emancipated. Accordingly, its slogan is, everything for the individual. The cornerstone of Marxism, however, is the masses, whose emancipation, according to its tenets, is the principal condition for the emancipation of the individual. That is to say, according to the tenets of Marxism, the emancipation of the individual is impossible until the masses are emancipated. Accordingly, its slogan is, Everything for the Masses. This was written by Joseph Stalin in a work he composed from December of 1906 to January of 1907. Nothing is new, and our time is not that unique. The technology and communications mediums change, but the battle remains the same. The desires of the mob versus individual rights. Political leaders harness this in both directions, but always tend to tyranny over time. Always. The reason is simple. Give an individual power for any period of time, and they seek to hold on to it. Further, the only way to really hold on to power over time is to accumulate more power. There is great power in the collective mindset. If you can get a large enough people thinking the same way, those thoughts have weight. And like gravity, they pull humanity toward a belief system. As always, hence, mind your thoughts. Today I will leave you with one more quote. Eternal vigilance is the price we pay for liberty. Thomas Jefferson, 1817. And... Um, that microblog, again, is at float.app, and there's a link in the audio notes that you can get after this, this stream is done when the audio version of the podcast, while the expert council members goes out, uh, where you can read that if you want to share the written version versus this video. I wrote that today, and it wasn't really what I planned on talking about today, but things kept coming in on the blog, and I, I thought with as much discussion as we had about this concept in that episode a couple, couple days ago, that we really need to expand on it. Because what has happened is exactly what I knew would happen, I certainly hoped would happen, and what always happens when you present people with the reality that you have two choices when it comes to how you view the world. You can view the world as there are certain things we need and want, and that people will pay for what they value, and that a free market should allow for that to occur. And that way it will occur in hundreds, if not thousands of permutations, and people will seek the one that best fits their needs. 
The other way is that these things are so important that they, we have to have them, and therefore it is necessary for us to take a gun, right, enforced by proxy, and have enforcers point that gun at somebody's face and say, you will give me money so that we can afford to do these things that we have to have. No one ever sees it that way because you're not the one out there with the gun doing the enforcement. You got it? That's why you don't think it's that way. That's why it sounds crazy when somebody tells you that. But think about anything that government does. It requires funding. Where does that funding come from? It comes from taxation. How do we get taxes? They're taken from people. Okay? And what happens when you say, I'm not going to pay? Then sooner or later, somebody with a gun in one form or another makes you pay. And when you say, but I think this thing is really, 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 really important. Whatever your little pet thing is that you think is important, you have to realize that there's thousands of other things that other people have as their pet thing. You know, some people say, well, we got to have state game lands. We'll talk about that in a second. Great guy that we're having this conversation with, but you can tell that the morality's pulling at him. Actually admitting what he's saying when he says we need the government to do this, and then understanding what he's saying is so we can have this, we need this pointed at peaceful people who don't want to be part of it. You try to talk around it because you don't want to accept that reality. That's what always happens. It's always violence. Even if, like, implied violence is still violence. So if I come up to you and I want your money, and I say, you know what, I don't have time for this shit, so I just clock you in the temple, pull your wallet out, take your money out of your wallet, throw your wallet back in your face, kick you in the ribs and walk away, everybody knows that was done with violence. But if I walk up to you and say, look at me and look at you, dude, you got no chance here. If you don't give me your wallet and let me have the money in it, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. And then you do it. Nobody sees the violence if they're at a distance. If they don't hear the conversation, they just say, well, the, the, the blonde guy that, the, that's bigger walked up to the other guy, talked to him, that guy pulled out, he must have bought something from him. It must have been voluntary. I mean, I didn't see anybody hit anybody or push anybody or shove anybody. Nobody ever looked really violent. And if I'm like a master mobster, and I'm like, hey, you know this is in your best interest, it can be like, The, the blonde dude, man, you know, the blonde dude with the gray sides on his head, man, he, and the gray beard, that dude was really, really, you know, really nice. He was really nice when he took the guy's money. There was no violence there. It's violence. And then having somebody do it for you is still violence. If you want me dead and you come shoot me, the violence that you executed was obvious. But if you hire somebody else to do it, it's still violence, isn't it? You're still responsible for it. And people don't want to accept this. And that leads to this discussion that I just had with a gentleman named Chris. And I've had similar discussions with other people. I'm not picking on Chris. I don't think Chris is a troll. I think he's a good man, and he's having a hard time accepting what he's re realizing right now. He brought up you know, state game lands and, and, and having places where people can go hunting. And, um, and the fact that most of it is actually paid for with fees, sort of, kind of, with licenses and fees. It could be anyway. It's not, but it could be. Um, And that, you know, people can't just go out and kill all the animals or whatever and destroy the resource. That wouldn't be good. And so he struggles with this. And we went back and forth. And I said, in the end, what you're saying is this thing is important enough to you that you are willing to use force and violence on peaceful people. And he came back with, well, if somebody comes in my backyard and starts messing it up, I'll use force. So if somebody starts, you know, messing up public lands, then, okay, I'm, using for I'm okay with using force on them. 
See, that's, that's the thing that everybody does when they get this moral question asked. You try to get out of the moral question. That wasn't the question. The question wasn't, should force be used to prevent somebody from breaking agreed-upon rules when they're using a resource? That, that wasn't the question. How is the resource provided in the first place, and how is the enforcement of the rules provided? By stealing from people who don't want to be part of what you're doing. And there's no way, even if you had a state where they said, we pay 100% of our state game, all our fees is paid for by sportsmen's fees and things like that. And we don't make anybody, we don't even put a tax on certain items that are only bought by sportsmen. Like, we literally have fees and licenses and special regulations areas, and we do 100%, only the people that participate pay for it. It would be a lie. And as soon as it's attached to a larger government apparatus, it's a lie. Because that department is always going to get money from above, which is going to allow more resources to be used. Plus, they're making decisions statewide, for instance, or regionally within states that really should not be made by one monopolizing organization. Why do they have that right to do that? If I own my own land, I own a thousand acres, and I'm hungry. Deer season's not for another week. I want to shoot a deer. Why can the state tell me I can't shoot my deer on my property? Why does the state have a right to tell me if I buy a piece of land, pay for my own pond, stock it with my own fish, how big a bass has to be before I can eat it? It doesn't make any sense, honestly, if you think about it that way. That's land that I own. So all of these things could be provided, but I don't want to go into how we would solve the problem very much today. I want to point out why you can't come up with solutions to solving the problem. Because you asked the wrong question first. The question everybody asks when this subject comes up is, but how would we? How would we? You ask the how first. and But you ask the how while you have an out. You ask the how while you have an answer, off the cuff, ready to go. The state can do it. So since the state can do it and it looks hard, I guess the state has to do it. That's, that's the, the mental trap. You lay for yourself, and then you willingly walk into it, and you set the trigger off, and then you're trapped, and you can't think. The first question should be the moral question. The one I keep asking that you keep refusing, well, not all of you, but many of you keep refusing to ask yourself, is it okay to use force and violence on peaceful people to take away their rightful property to provide something just because the thing we're providing is necessary or good or benevolent, or whatever. Is it okay to take something like this and point it either directly or metaphorically, because you all know what happens if you don't follow the rules. Sooner or later, somebody with one of these comes to your house and takes you away and kidnaps you because you didn't follow the rules. Are you okay with that? Yes or no? Don't be afraid to answer it. And if the answer is no, if the answer is no, then there's only one decision for you to make, so you can be congruent with your belief systems. Now, once you make that decision, what happens then is you find solutions to everything that everybody says will never solve, and you realize you don't have to find all the solutions. Imagine if government said before there were cars, we need a car. So we're going to collectively steal money and build a car and provide every American with a car. What kind of piece of shit freaking car do you think we would have ended up with? And how many private sector cars would there be? How many Model Ts would have been created? How many Oldsmobiles? How many Chevrolets? Right? When, when government was not involved and people were like, hey, if I make a thing that people can get in, 
and drive around and get places faster than with a horse and buggy. And when you park it and you don't use it for a week, you don't have to feed it. You only feed it when you use it. Then I'll, I'll, I'll get wealthy. And so people came at it a hundred different ways. And we got a lot of options. And now we have all different types of cars. Now government's gotten involved since, and I don't think that's for the best. But the, the metaphor holds up because we didn't think, oh, gee, government should make us a car. Had we done so, we would have shut down. Or government should figure out how we can move faster from point A to point B. We would have never even got to a car. We would have tried to make trains go faster and put in more tracks. That's what would have happened. Because that's how government limits the creativity of the mind. But as soon as you make the mental decision, it is not okay. It is not okay in any way whatsoever for you to use force on peaceful people to take their rightfully acquired property from them. If they do not want to be involved in what you're doing, then you have no choice but to find an answer. And you realize that no matter how hard we have to work at an answer, there's probably always a better answer than by force. Is there any way we can do this without the state? If so, what? And if you have a situation, let's go back to hunting and fishing. You know, maybe my solution is I'm going to buy a deer lease and not worry about it and I have my own place to hunt and you can guys go screw it. Maybe some of you will join a club and you'll be able to hunt on 20 or 30 properties and not just in your state and you won't have to buy a different license every time you go to another state because there wouldn't be any states. And maybe there's ways to do that more affordably than you can even imagine, but nobody's tried yet because nobody has to. Because there's a monopoly on the right to do it. Because even the person running a private hunting piece parcel is told by the state what they can and they cannot do. And, and people say, well, they'll hunt all the animals away, like they did with the American buffalo. Well, who did that? Did the Native Americans who lived here for thousands of years before we got here do that? No. Did the frontiersmen that went west just to try to find a life do that? No. The United States military, along with hired guns, went out and slaughtered the buffalo specifically to eliminate the threat of the Indian by starving them out. The state did it. The state did it. Almost every situation that you come up with, you can point to and say, if we don't have government, this is what would, would happen, like it did back then. And you go, okay, well, how did it happen back then? Well, the government. Right? If we don't have government, we'll have gangs. What's a bigger gang than the government? But I don't have to convince you of that. It's not my job. I'm not going to judge you for your decision. I just want you to judge yourself for your decision. I want you to be hard on yourself. I, want, I don't want you to run away from being uncomfortable in this question. All you have to come back to is, is it okay to force other people to do what you want them to do? Or give up their property so that you can have what you want to have. And can any level of voting, any level of title, any level of uniform, any level of special, special pleading fallacy as to how necessary it is ever change the morality of the initial decision? And I think once you make the initial decision, it's a light switch. It's forever. It is, it is the real Red pill. It is the only real red pill. I do not have a right to take something that you own. Ever. Against your will. And therefore I cannot elect somebody or defer a right that I do not have. 
And therefore, it is incumbent upon me, no matter what it is I think I need, to figure out how I can get it without taking it from somebody else. It really is that simple. Again, I encourage you to get involved on Float social media, and you'll find uh, that my contemplations of the redneck hippie duck farmer are exclusive to that platform. And that wraps up another Expert Council Q&A show. Remember, if you have a question for an Expert Council member and you want your question answered on the air, most of the time it's going to happen if you follow the formula. Send me an email, and you send that email to where? Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I've had people say, I couldn't find your email. I have the most public email on the Internet. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. My name and the website put together. But there is a formula to make sure I see your email and a formula to be likely to get an answer. Number one, put TSPC for the Survival Podcast in the subject line. TSPC in the subject line. And expert counsel question or question for Keith Snow or question for Ben Falk or whatever. Anything as long as it tells me what it is and has TSPC in it. I do that because I use spam filtering and I always go into the spam hole and I search for that. And that way I will always eventually, you know, sometimes it might take a few days before I do it, but I will resurrect your message from spam death if you do that. Then tell me who your question is for. If you're not sure, say, you know, you can tell me just whoever I want. But if you have any idea who you want to answer, ask. And then um, ask your question in a single sentence. My question is, dun, 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 question mark. And then hit enter, enter, and then give me the details that you find relevant. But ask the question up front in one sentence first. I promise you, you can do it. Everybody will be more clear about what's going on, including you, and you will be much more likely to get through screening and to get an answer. All right, with that, we've wrapped up again. Hey, you heard the live stream there. If you like what you heard on the live stream today, And you think, man, I'd like to be in one of those live streams. I'll let you know a secret. That one, with audience interaction, when I cut it at 15 minutes, it went 40. We had a lot of back and forth and discussion going on there. We had a great time to like we always do. If you want to be able to find out whatever the next one coming is, you can go to tspclive.com. It'll take you down to a certain uh, a subpage on the site. And as long as I've updated the last one, the next one coming will be there and tell you what it's all about. TSPCLive.com will give you all the streams you can, because I'm on a bunch of different platforms, right? So whatever one you prefer, you can use. Uh, so TSPCLive.com. Remember, you can support the show by going to TSPAS.com whenever you shop online. I don't have an item of the day for you today, but you can still go there even when I don't have an item of the day. You just go there, you see all my reviews. And if you're just going to buy something online, just go there first and start there, no matter what you choose. You will help support me and the work that I do. Uh, with that, I'll sign off. I'll be back tomorrow. And like I said on the stream there, I have an episode coming tomorrow of Out Back with Jack, of our variety show to end the week, and it will be all fire. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? said you should have a house the American way a dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a better way to do this let me show you a better way Crowd. You don't have to live the way they tell you to. 
Nobody up there cares. 